Listener Production. It's Rusty here, all set for part two of a very special edition of The Garage with Supercars team owner Brad Jones. By popular demand, we have been to the workshop to record this one, all with thanks to our partner, Pizza Hut. Now, if you've somehow arrived here and missed part one, jump back to the library and give it a listen. There are some fabulous yarns in there, from the racing legends that used to come round for a feed after the races when he was younger, the hard yards in trying to stitch together a race program as he climbed the ladder with brother Kim, life lessons around business and money, the guidance of people like Kevin Bartlett, racing the Mitsubishi Starion and much more. Brad has always enjoyed a chat and I've only ever known him to be incredibly engaging. For some reason, this chat is even more so. I'm grateful that we can help share a terrific racing story with lots of twists and turns about a bloke who isn't afraid to give it a go when most of us couldn't see a way to make it fly. And he is still there, immersed in the business he loves today. We begin part two with a couple of recollections of the great Barry Sheen and that time that he tested the Broxy era, a yarn our mate Baz didn't like to talk about too much. The thing about Brock is he's got so much star power, he tracks people. I remember we went down before the Celebrity Grand Prix and, and drove uh, Glenn Wheatley and John Farnham some training, and that's the power of Brock. You know, mm. he would they'd ring him up and... So Brock quickly worked out that Wheatley had more of a chance to win than John Farnham, so he jumped in with Wheatley and gave me uh, John Farnham. And so, you know, all those amazing people would bob up on Brock's radar and for him it was an everyday occurrence. So so then Baz, who's very personable, you know, we knew he'd done some racing and either he or either Brock or Gow decided it was a good idea to put him in my car to do some laps at Winton and he poked it into the wall and uh, broke his rib and damaged the car and so I had to miss a, a round of the championship, which Gow docked me for, I might add. So, <laughs> but I got him, I invoiced him a bit later in the year twice. <laughs> Oh. Um, and so, so, but Baz was a great guy, you know, like, yeah. and, and, you know, funny that day we built a bit of a relationship and, you know, I went to a couple of rock concerts with him and stuff like. Um, so well connected. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Honestly, we went to Phil Collins. So, you know, I was in, in Queensland and Baz was like, oh, what are you doing? And I said, oh, not much. He goes, you want to come to Phil Collins? I went, yeah, sure. <laughs> So, you know, we get there and, and the, the lady's like, oh, here are your tickets and Baz looks at him and, you know, he couldn't offend anyone really unless he wanted to and he's like, oh, dear, these are not good tickets, are they? I said, could you just grab the manager for me? I think there's been a mistake. <laughs> and so, so I'm like, what are you doing? He goes, these are shit tickets. We'll get some better ones. Just, just hang on. So the manager comes out and he goes, hi. He said, I'm Barry. Oh, no, no, you are. He goes, oh, I think there's been a bit of a mistake with our tickets. He goes... Oh, what are you doing sitting there? He said, leave it to me. So, you know, we were right in the front. Then he goes, look, if you've got time, Phil and the boys would like to meet you. So, so you know, we're backstage with Phil Collins and the band and they're, and they're all getting their photos taken with Baz and, and he's getting his them pictures with babies and then when we went to sit in the seats, I said to him, what just happened, Baz? Um, they, they, they all think you're the star. And he goes, well, you know, in the UK, um, they did a survey and like one in four people know who I am or one in seven or something. I had a television show and, you know, rattled through all this stuff. He's a matter of fact. He was an amazing guy. Yep, yep. And so, uh, yeah, he said, yeah, pity he didn't come to the Rolling Stones concert. That was even better. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, yeah, he was, he was, uh, he was a funny guy. But, but he, did, he did damage the Sierra. Okay. What were the Sierras like to drive and did you enjoy and, them? And, you know, interesting enough, Go. They, they put Larko in the car with, me or they were going to and uh, um, I forget something happened and then Radisic got involved but you know it's funny how you come across those people all the way through your life and then Paul and I drove together at at Bathurst. You brought up celebrity races. Uh, A gentleman by the name of Neil Crompton who may or may not be uh, in Indianapolis has texted me and said to ask you about the suits that you fixed us up with when you trained some of the girls at the Australian Grand Prix. What happened that year? What did you do? Well, it was always interesting um, training the celebrities. And um, 
<laughs> so, so, but we needed suits to wear out to a function with the, you know, um, with with the post event stuff. No, oh, just the, they had they had the government and they like got to wear a suit and I'm like, you got to be kidding. Where am I going to get a suit from? So we went to a friend of mine who sold suits in in Adelaide, and then we got exactly the same suit. But slightly shade difference, so it looked like the Bobsy twins. You know, one was like green and one was blue, but they were a bluey green and a greeny blue. So we looked uh, <laughs> like twins. Yeah, yeah. It was very, but you know, he and I would. I mean, he was always very. You know, Neil was always he. He'd do the chat and and then he'd run them through all the flags and and very thorough. You know, and yeah. I can remember. There was, um, there was, I won't tell you who it was, but there was one lady there and she couldn't tell the difference between any of the flags. And so Neil's railed through every flag, including the Union Jack, um, uh, that, that, that you use on a race meeting. And I'm like, are you kidding me? So he stood there for like 30 minutes. Um, she played a flute, this woman. Anyway, um, in the end, I walked up and I said to her, only flag you need to pay attention to is this one, the yellow flag. If this is waved, slow down. And the blue flag, if that's waved, get out of the way. Ignore the rest, which imagine Crompton. He's like, no, no, no. <laughs> so, you know, but it worked really well. The two of us are very, you know, different, but we fit each other really well. You are the odd couple. I mean, you talk about yeah. sharing, a, sharing a room and stuff before and... Um, You've done some trips together, like to places like Williams and things like that, haven't you? Share that, share that. Yeah. Yarn. Oh well, you know, we were we were at Gow's and Gow's office was in a castle, and so <laughs> so um, they want us to get changed, and so Neil, being Neil, drags his bag, which weighs a ton, up all these flights of stairs in a castle, little little bum 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 bum, and I'm like, I'm not doing that. So I just went out in the car park and got changed on the grass. And so, you know, which horrified cow and Crompton. And so I'm standing there and, um, and the sprinkler system had come on, put my bag back in the car, and I, but I left my briefcase uh, on, the, on the grass. And, and so uh, Neil gets in the car. So we're going over to meet Frank Williams and have a look around Williams Engineering. So I pick up my briefcase and Neil's got on some, uh, you know, like chinos that are almost white. You know, they're sort of like... Perfectly creased. Yeah, yeah perfectly creased. And I picked up my briefcase off the wet grass and sat it on his knees and gone, just move that to the other side of the car. Oh. So then when he's lifted it off, it's like mud and he's like, oh, my God. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Well, you think Frank Williams is going to go, wow, you look talented. I'm going to put you in a Formula 1 car. No one gives a shit if you've got mud on your pants and Neil, just get over it. <laughs> so then we go over and we do the tour of Williams and we have a look around and, and then we get right to the end and we're thinking we're going to meet Frank Williams. And so, so someone comes down and goes, okay, Frank's able to see you now. And so we leap out of the chair and he goes, not you two, just Alan. <laughs> and left us in the foyer. So, so, oh, that was a crazy trip. We went through the Donington Museum and there was like no one in there. And I'm uh, jumping over the um, banners, you know, yeah. don't get on the other side of the banner, don't touch the cars. And I'm climbing in and out of Senna's McLaren and, <laughs> you know, and, and Neil's standing there going... Get out of that car. Get out. Can you not read the sign? I said, what are they going to do? Kick me out? Who cares? Here, take a picture of me. I'm not taking a picture. You're not allowed to sit in that car. So get out of Senna's car and we go and look at something at Prostad, you know, because he would not take a photo. In the end, um, Alan Jones' former, old Formula One car was there. The Lola. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I was a little worried it might bite me, actually. And so... Um, he wouldn't take a picture of me in it, so we got the janitor to take a picture of the two of us standing beside it. So that's that's his. But I, he had all these great photo opportunities. You know, uh, there was a speedway bike there was all plated with gold. A New Zealand guy had won the world championship. What was his name? Is it Ivan? Ivan Major, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His. Yeah. And and so I jumped on that. You know, get off it. <laughs> yeah, so so yeah, he wasn't that much fun to travel with. Yeah, as as mates, uh, you know, you've been involved on the the business side with supercars and things like that. Do you do you argue the peer review? Are you what do you what do you like? Do you uh, do you have the same sort of common you know wants for the game? We we don't argue much. Hmm. Um, I mean, not everyone has the odd argument, and hmm. and so sometimes we have a difference of opinion. Um, but 
honestly, we're such close friends. Mm. We hardly ever have a crossword, really crossword. Um, I'm sure I frustrate him. You know, you've been on doing radio shows yeah. with the two of us. You know, understand he turns up with, you know, a pad and notes and it's a second-by-second run-through. And if I'm interviewing someone and I'm enjoying it, I don't stop, mm. So, which it frustrates him. And so he's... We're just very different people, people, but we fit nicely together, and so um, and and we can see the same common goal. Yeah. In all honesty, and and um, yeah, I I you know he's he's one of my very dearest friends, and and we've had an amazing life together. The Oscar and NASCAR chapter is a is a special one that that fans love. The the foray into that you talked about the prize money being quite a lure mm. before as well, but it was I mean you were green in terms of that sort of style of racing and speedway and and what have you weren't you oh absolutely we had no idea i mean we bought the car uh from a guy in sydney it was a an automatic um commodore even had an automatic cross member when we got down to brocks um we went to put the the engine in arch builder so it wouldn't fit had the wrong cross member the good thing about being at <laughs> Brock's joint was there was still plenty of holding stuff laying around and so in the middle of the night you walk around with a torch and it'd be like I wonder if this cross member would fit in the car so we'd just make a note and I'd put it in the car and then you know say to Brock in the morning hey I found this old where'd you find it out the back there oh, it's rubbish and I was like not anymore <laughs> so we had no idea what we were doing so we um um uh, we built the car and we turned it out, turned, went out to call them. We didn't have any time to practice. And so Brock was out there. I think he was driving the Falcon Oscar. And Phil Brock, his, his brother, um, and he kept his car at Birdie Street. And it was parked just opposite where the garages were, you know, where, the, where you worked on the car. And Brock let us work there all night, all day, all night to, to get the car. And so we only just got there, missed all practice, turned up for qualifying. And I remember I was walking down the lane there at... Um, uh, pit lane at the Thunderdome and I was with, with the two Brocks and Pin said well this is going to be a bit daunting for you and I said oh yeah and he goes never driven around here I said not in a race car and he goes hmm I got no idea what you're doing you got no idea what your setup is you just got no idea really and I said well I know my tie pressures are right and he goes your tie pressures are right are they and I said yeah I think my tie pressures are right and he goes how would you know that? And I said, because I checked yours on the trailer before <laughs> before we loaded our car up. And so I put them in my car, which made Brock pee pants. He was pissing himself laughing. He thought that was hilarious. And Phil was a bit... <laughs> he, he, didn't, he didn't think it was funny as Brock and I did. Um, but, you know, but then away we went. And then the first race meeting, um, we I think we finished 13th or something, but... We came into a pit stop and all my mates were the crew. So, yeah. you know, Kim and I and Dove and Grub and we, we'd all built the car, painted the, I painted the car and Kim built it. And then um, one of my schoolhood friends, school childhood friends, mates, yeah, childhood yeah, mates yeah. helped and he was Colin Dudridge, he was on the jack and so he's a, he's a tree lopper, he's a solid guy. And we had a, like the trolley jack from my panel shop. So it's a, you know, cast iron trolley jack. <laughs> And so he said, if I'm going to cart this thing over here this many times, the next one you'll get another trolley jack and all those aluminium things. <laughs> but, but we were jacking the car up under the front cross member and under the diff. Not under the sides. Not under the sides because we didn't know you had to jack it up under the sides. So when we came in to do a pit stop, and I remember Brendan Jones, who was in race control, came down and went, what are you cowboys doing? <laughs> so I was like, we hadn't even seen the NASCAR race on television. We had no idea. So then, then the next race... Um, we had no sponsors, so we we did that race, and Bob Jane um, had had said you know that he would sponsor us, and he got Alan Mance mm. to sponsor us, and so we struck a deal and we painted orange, put Alan Mance on it, Bob Jane Team Arts, and uh, then we won. That was that was a Christmas race. That was my second race, and we won that. And in those days, it paid thirty thousand dollars if you could win three races in a row. And then uh, we turned up in January, and we won that, and. Um, we thought, wow, this is good. We're going to pick up 30K here. And uh, then they changed the rule to say you had to win three in a season. Mm-hmm. You know, so we won the next one. So that's two two in the season. So then we lined up to win the next one and they, they took the 30 grand away. Sugar. So, so but we won the championship that year. The, the, it was the start of a, a string of success there. What did you enjoy about the cars and, and racing, you know, at, at the Thunderdome and venues like that? Uh, I think looking back, 
it, it, you know, there's circuits that meet your eye. So Bathurst was a very good circuit for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, Simmons Plains was a good circuit for me. There were circuits that you, you gravitated you get, to, you just or go connected. a little bit better on than some of the others. Um, you know, it depends a little bit on the car, but but honestly, I think oval track racing is something that really met my eye, mm. and um, I enjoyed a lot, and 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 was in the prime of my my life, and we were very successful. Um, it was it was just one of those things, and mm. and as a kid, I always wanted to be an Australian champion or something, and and for I think it was probably just that it ended up that was my first Australian championship as a race car driver was. At the Thunderdome, it was amazing. I mean, remember the presentation dinner? Bob had three hundred and fifty people there. I can't remember where the venue was, but it was two story, and we're having drinks downstairs. And then you had uh, like a band walk up playing instruments, and you you followed them like the Pied Piper into the. It was amazing, and um, uh, and I remember I, I, my speech went forever the first time, and Raymond leaned across to my ear and said wind it up and I said Mike I've got a lot to say and I might never end up here again so just settle down and we'll be finished in due course yeah. and, and it was um, it was good racing um, great opportunity to spend time with friends taught me a lot and it was just something that I, I took to mm. I was my greatest disappointment in life is I never really got an opportunity to have a run in something in America you did explore so, that though didn't you well and, uh, 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 as frustrating as the, the you know yeah I did yeah. Um, you could, um, if you won the championship, then Bob paid for two tickets to America. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we won six times. So spent a lot of time in America and every, every year I'd stay there longer. Um, I, um, met Bob Gaiden Anyway, we helped on Dick Johnson's crew when he raced at Charlotte mm-hmm. and, and, um, Kim, uh, did the pit board and I think I cleaned the windscreen and, um, but we met met Bob Gaden and and you know sort of tried to get involved in in that crew I don't mm. think Dick was probably that interested in in racing in the states and I was really really interested so you know Ray Everingham was building those cars so I went and stayed at Ray's place for a, a period of time and and tried to talk him into giving me a chance I mean it wasn't his choice but but you know yeah I mean, bit of a relationship in in the modern era. Marcus had a had a had a great chapter there, mate. It would have been phenomenal for you to to have gone off and done that. But what what, what was the what was the barrier? Was it was it money? Was it reputation? Was it Australians weren't known? What what was the thing? I, I think it was money. Hmm. You know, we we went over there. I just couldn't afford to do anything. I hadn't done a lot of NASCAR racing. I'd been in Oscar, hmm. so we we flew our Oscar over there and ran them around Charlotte. Hmm. And Kim and I um, had decided to make it look the very best we could went and got the lowest diff ratio we could and then we put it in the car and then we went out to gm's proving ground and ran around the banked oval there and geared it up to do like 180 or 190 miles an hour so when the cars got there they had me and terry sawyer and they they just had the calder gearing in it Mm -hmm. and so um for the Americans to be driving in the opposite direction of them was quite a novelty. See, yeah. And so it was part of the pre-race entertainment was us doing three laps around the track. And I asked if I could go as fast as I could and they said, no, you need to go the same speed the other car's going. So I'm like, oh, man. So I was only in like second gear. And I said, when the checkered flag's out, what happens then? We come back to the pits. And I said, well, can I go as fast as I want then? And they're like, yeah, just Come into the pits. I'm like, no problem. So then they wave the checkered flag and I'm like coming up the checkered flag and I'm like back through the gears and then whistling into, you know, what was turn one for me, turn one and two, going down the back straight. It'd be the first time I've ever really been able to hear a crowd. There's 190,000 people there or something and they're all standing up watching and this thing, because it had a megaphone on it, it was sounded like it was doing, you know, 14,000 revs. And, uh, and then, you know, and the track was so smooth compared to the Thunderdome. It was like yep. a billiard table. And then, you know, pinged it down into into three. And then honey had a little standard holding brakes on. I was trying to try and stop it to get in the pits. So I came in there <laughs> all out of shape. Hot. But <laughs> but it was it was amazing. But that was the only time I really got to drive. When I went I went to Pocono with, with um Ray and when they ran the car and had, had a different driver in it. But I just couldn't I didn't have any money. I what were they what were they wanting? What sort of number? Ah, oh, I, c- I couldn't even tell you to 
mm. to tell you the truth. But it telephone was, book stuff like a crazy. No, not or, Richard. I didn't mm. have any money. Okay. You know, we didn't we we didn't have any money, and so so I can remember Ray saying to me, "Lots of Australians come here and they don't go very well. What's different about you?" And I said, "Well, I've got no money, so I but I can drive. So mm. you just give me an opportunity and we'll work it out." Mm. And and um, but it just wasn't. I never ever got to do a test. It was just sort of disappointing. And and I, I would have been keener to run on half miles and three quarter miles. And I didn't really need to go and do, you know, Daytona and Talladega. I wanted to make a living out of it. So I felt my best chance was to go somewhere where you know you got your elbows out a little bit. And then when we finally did ra- get an NASCAR and go racing, you know, um, the the I went quite well against the Americans here. And but you know the opportunity had sort of come and gone. If I couldn't if I couldn't get into the red coat car, I didn't feel like I had any opportunity, and and that was shut down on me. That was a cool car that you brought back from the states, and it's a bit of bit of a yarn in getting it too. Wasn't the, the, the pure later car, yeah, the yeah, first one we yeah. bought. Yeah. So so how that came about was every every December, um, Americans would come and race at the Thunderdome. Bob would fly them out with their cars, and and so prize pool was a million dollars. And, and so there was a little restaurant in Hamilton and uh, – sorry, in Hawthorne and it had a million dollars in cash and two security guards with shotguns and it was a purse-back safe and my brother and I were pacing around that thing like a couple of caged tigers <laughs> uh, trying to work out how we could get some of that money. And I said to Kim, we've got to have a go at this. Like this is crazy. It's me and Bucks. You know, while we think Oscar is where it's at, um, you know, we'd, we'd won a lot at Oscar – and and um, let's let's get that into a road race because they had the service paradise race yep. where they were paying seventy five thousand dollars to win that race, and so I said to Kim, I reckon we can win that race. They'll pay for the car. We've got a bit of money in the bank, so we we took every cent we had. Or we went to America when I won the championship, and then Kim had befriended um, a guy called Billy Hess, who who was a chassis maker, mm-hmm. and he took us around to buy a car. And he took us over to this workshop and the Purolator car was there, or the Purolator cars were there. Mm-hmm. There was a guy called Derek Cope who'd won the Daytona event a couple of years before. And so we walked in and we're looking around the car and Billy's gone off to talk to the owner. And um, he's walked back out again. He said, um, what did he want? And I said, oh, Derek? And he goes, yeah, what was he saying to you? And uh, he said, oh, he, he was saying that this is one of his favourite cars um, he doesn't really want to sell it, but they've got some new ideas going on. And um, he goes, oh, man, that wanker. He said, yeah, he hates that car. They put it in the truck so he doesn't wreck his primary car. <laughs> he does not like that car. But it's a good car. We're going to cut the nose off it and we'll, you know, we'll change it. And that's, that's what we did. But we went to Carl Yarbrough's yard and he named all his cars after the Flintstones. And yeah. so, you know, you go out the back and, and he's got all these cars um, under a peppercorn tree and then Billy's walking around with a tape measure working out if he cuts the clip off it what what sort of car it would end up with and so he fixed this car up for us and then we came back and painted black and Castrol sponsored it and off we went to um, to the Gold Coast. Just amazing mate and, and uh, such a cool car that evokes great memories even now. <clears throat> I'm glad you bring up the Castrol connection. At this point are you um you know, Pizza Hutter here assisting us with, with this podcast today, making it happen. Are you confident walking into boardrooms? Are you, you know, or is it more about relationships? You could ring a Castrol and go, hey, I need a, I need a hand with that. How did you um, well, do that side of it? I had a good relationship with Castrol. They, did, they were looking to sponsor cars. And so they had Larry in, well, to start with, they decided to do my Oscar program. We've been very successful at that. And then they ended up with Larry in, in touring car racing and they had a, the same look and feel right across right across the field. So drag cars, um, Oscar and, and Larry in the Group A car. And so I had a great relationship with John Sulzak at Castrol and, mm-hmm. and um, they felt like they were grooming me for the future. I was also driving at HRT who had Castrol sponsorship at the time and and it was like not a bad connection, and um, uh, and and it lasted for you know four or five years, like it's quite a while. Mm. And um, but they were talking to us about running a um, a touring car, and um, they ended up with a new marketing guy, and he wanted to do a deal, and he was hoping to get get a, a you know a young driver in as well. I mean, they ended up doing something with Longhurst, but um, the numbers didn't stack up. 
and um, and so we raced the Oz car and then slowly got choked. So mm. it just it didn't work out. You know, we started with Cooper Tools, ended up with Castrol, and then put me. Um, yeah, that was that was how it all worked out. How did you feel about the demise of that series? Because I mean, it seemed like such a cool. It's really thing. sad. Uh, you know, I had some some of my most amazing memories were the Thunderdome, good and bad. Mm. Um, you know, I be, before we raced the the NASCARs there, I can remember the last Oscar race I won, and um, man, there was thirty five thousand people there or more. Thirty five thousand on a bad night and fifty thousand on a good night, and they just booed me like crazy, and so. When, when they did the driver introductions, I'd always, you have to back your car up to the fence and I'd go and sit down on the, in the outside front wheel so, you know, I wouldn't get hit by a can or just then the things they'd say to you. So I'd just, just quietly sit down there. and Just well, purely because of your success, what you Well, made. yeah. And, and so, so um, I didn't, just didn't really like it. And, and so they, they, they booed, booed a lot and we went back and I was, the car was in the garage and had the trophy on the bench and my dad, you know, came in on his crutches and, and said, well done, son, that was great to see, fantastic race. And I said to him, you know, I just wish it wouldn't boo me. I haven't done anything wrong except won a lot mm. and I don't, I, don't, I don't like it and it's, I, don't, I just don't like it. He goes, I, who was booing? I went, are you kidding? Where'd you watch a race from? The MCG. <laughs> <laughs> Man, it didn't, if this had a roof, they would have lifted it off. Mm. So, so as, a, as a segue for that, um, the next season I raced the NASCAR. And so we did the first race and they didn't do the driver introduction. And then the second race was when the Americans were here and they mm-hmm. backed us all up the fence. And I went and sat down where I normally sit in the corner. And um, my brother was standing just near me, and then they they you know introduced a couple of Americans. They got to me, man. I got the biggest cheer. It was unbelievable. I looked at Kim and I said, um, "What's going on?" You're their guy, mm. and he mm. goes, <laughs> "They think you're the only one that can beat these guys, mm. so that's why they're cheering for you." I went, "Wow, that's so weird." Mm. But but it was, you know, it's it's I guess it's a bit fickle, but that was the, you know some of the roughs up at some of the races I had, you know. Racing, I can't explain to you what it feels like to come off a corner, um, you know, with all the G forces pushing your body down, you know, a little bit opposite lock on, you slide up within, you know, six inches or eight inches of the wall, the wheels are spinning, the thing's got over 650 horsepower, it wants to turn left and you're trying to hold it straight. It's just unbelievable feeling. And, and, um, and, you know, and some of those races I had were, were you know some of the best racing I've ever had in my life. You captured it very very well, and I know you said you you didn't think you could, but but add to that, mate, the the sense of show, people like Bob Jane driving it, things like prize money. You even you even mentioned Mike Raymond before. It is a real shame it is no longer around, or that it didn't didn't continue given all that stuff. You know. Yeah, and and really it was it was right in my 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 hip pocket you know mm. i felt like you know it's like a lot of the touring car guys came out you know there's one particular guy came out and he's like i'm gonna smash you and i went yeah well we'll see about that and um uh it was just it was and and a bit ahead of its time the thing that bought it undone mm-hmm. was he paid so much money in prize money that that there wasn't a lot of us that had strong commercial sponsorship and so when he had to pull the money back because he was running out of money um, then people couldn't race anymore because they needed his money to go racing. Mm. The commercial support wasn't there. Yeah, for it. Mm. and so mm. really, and then he couldn't he couldn't upgrade the track. It was rough. Um, you know, it was is unfortunate. But mm. my time, you know, I got to, I was starting to get feel like I was getting treated really badly there at the end, and so so you know I had decisions against me that I felt shouldn't have been against me, and so you know my timing to get out a couple of years before it's total demise. Was, was probably well-timed. What was interesting was John Sidney was like our nemesis with NASCAR and I always looked at to him as as good cars, hard to beat. Mm-hmm. And so I got an opportunity to go back and drive one of his cars, which which Rodney Jane normally drove. Mm-hmm. And it was a it just reminded me how difficult it was. First time I got in the car, I got down to the start-finish line and I lifted off because I felt like it was going too fast. So when you get up to the corner, you're doing 170, 180 miles an hour and you're pointing the thing at the wall and you get off the throttle and just drag the brake a bit and tip it into the corner. 
you don't wake up one morning and do that. The thing about NASCAR racing is you can go fast for a lap if you're really brave, but ultimately you need the skill to be able to do a lap after lap after lap. Mm. And and that's that's where the craft is in it. It's it's tricky. With Rusty being in the country, we're left in the studios all alone. Oh well, here I'll do a quick levels test. One, two, one, two. Okay, we're good to continue with the episode. Let's talk Bathurst One Thousands. There's you know some great trophies in this in this venue here, and I know that's you know a a race that you love with a uh, with a deep passion, mate. Is there one race of, of all of them that is you know? From uh, perhaps it was the double stint that you did when you were with with Lounsey that year. What is there one race that sticks in your mind that you sort of think, wow, you know? Uh, there's probably a couple of things. I wouldn't say there's one standout. I mean, mm-hmm. I felt like that year in in '94 when I did that double stint, I thought that was, you know, I was very proud of that, mm. um, and frustrated that I wasn't going to be in the race at the end. Mm. Um, the 2002 um, or 2001 when I chased Scaife down in the Aussie mail car, um, I just, you know, there, there ended up being a bit of a gap between us when when um, we went past Morris, mm-hmm. like Morris, and, and allowed him to skip away. You know, I, was, I, was, I felt like I had given it everything I could that day. Mm. Um, the following year was probably the best car I ever had. JB was a, a really good teammate. To, to run around Bathurst with and and I thought we we really complemented each other and so um, um, that car we blew an engine the first day I ran in uh, Russell Lingle ran into me and and damaged the car in one of the practice sessions but the car was just on fire and I'd done a handful of laps before the race started I led the first 33 laps until we did the pit stop mm. and it broke a, unfortunately where where Russell and I had made contact. It had uh, damaged the uh, rose joint, which, which unfortunately hadn't been replaced, and and we we end up going down three or four laps, and that car was so fast, I think we unlapped ourselves once just on pace. So so that was a race where you never you know end up with a lap record, but no one knows how how good that was. I mean that was a pretty funny day. Um, we were in the car, it was freezing cold, going mm. around. Before the race started, parade the parade lap. Yeah, in yeah, the back yeah, of the Ute, yeah, yeah. and and there's a lot more Holden fans, Holden fans there than Ford fans, and they're booing us like crazy. JB and I, and I said to him, oh, "Man, this pisses me off. I don't like getting booed much." And and he said, um, "Oh well, you know, it's part of racing." Mm-hmm. And I said, "You know what? If I'm leading this race for the first lap, I'm going to flip in the bird as we sail across the top of the hill out the window." And he goes, I think you're better off just focusing on driving. <laughs> so I said, nah, I'm going to flip the bird. So I uh, got a good start and I um, um, can't remember if Scaife or Murph were beside me on the grid. Anyway, I get up to turn two and Stevie Richards in the wins card found his way into second place. And I had like a three or four uh, car length gap. And, and so I remember going around the turn two and coming out and having to really think about whether I was going to flip in the bird or, or knuckle down. And I hadn't done many laps in practice and I felt, I mean, I, I could only just get off the toilet to start the race. I was that nervous. And, and so um, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to put my head down, which I did. And I didn't look back for the whole lap. And, and there's a great picture um, during the round somewhere of me on the first lap and I've come out of the last corner and I'm at that little rise, mm. you know, and I looked in the mirror then and I said to Phil, um, has it been an accident? He goes, no, mate, you've just got a two-second lead. And I was like, cool, okay. And then I just waited for Scaife and Murphy to catch me, got myself in, and then when they caught up, I was ready to go. And then so, you know, I'd break the lab record and then, MS would break the lab record and then a couple laps later I'd do it and then he'd do it and we'd just go faster and faster and then it got near the end of my stint and I could see him, I could start to pull away from him, I could see him up on the curbs and I'm like, okay, this is the day, mm. we're going to, this is going to be a good day. Mm. But unfortunately, the, you know, we had a problem with the car, so 
So yeah. there's so these things like that that you remember back fondly. Mm-hmm. You know, for me that was a just a moment in time, but a special one. How brutally unforgiving is it, mate? I, I reckon I can vividly recall talking to you maybe the year you were, you were with Larco, and I think you welled up when I when I, I did. interviewed yeah, you. It was you on know? telly, mm. and and the, well, the physio sent me a message the following year saying, "Hey, good luck, mate, at Bathurst. This Crompton's mate," and. Um, Try not to try Sven. and cry on TV. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was was it Sven? I can't remember. No, I, we jokingly well. called him Sven. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was two of them. I think they both end up being called Sven. Um, but yeah, it's a very emotional. I'm not an emotional guy. Oh, yeah. You know, like very much not an emotional guy. And but that brings every emotion out in you. And so I've uh, been. You know, I felt that year with Larco, we were a big chance to win that race, and mm. it really came down to us and and Bridie. And um, Stephen Richards and and um, the seat was broken and it was like putting a rib out in you and so I was going down and getting a drip in the um, in the first aid office in between stints to it's just hard work and then that thing stopped opposite the pits and it really took us out of a, a podium position and and um, um, and I think we finished fifth it was disappointing super touring. You and I would have a bit to do with each other with the with the coverage. Awesome chapter globally. I mean, what Alan Gow was doing in the in the UK, for example, and um, what we started doing here. Um, you would basically, in the wake of of Bathurst that year and that podium with with Craig, uh, pick up the phone and and join some dots with Audi and and start putting wheels in motion, wouldn't you, to to do something here in Australia? Yeah, I was at an Oscar race um, straight after Bathurst. And I knew Audi were interested in doing doing something in Super Touring. You know, they're racing around the world. And Peter Roofley was a managing director. Mm-hmm. And so um, I got his number and I took a deep breath and I rang him. And I said, uh, hi, Peter. My name's Brad Jones. I, uh, I've, um, I'm not sure if you watch Bathurst, um, but I finished second. And um, my brother and I have got a team and I'd love to come and talk to you about Super Touring and Audi and what we can do for you. And he said... Oh, Bradley, um, thanks for the call. I've, I don't know who you are. Um, I didn't watch Bathurst, but um, I'd be interested in seeing you. And he made an appointment like two months down, down the road. The track. Hmm. And I said, fantastic, thank you for your time. See you then. And, and really, you know, uh, that was the start of a, a really great relationship. And, and Peter still, you know, comes to the races. You know, he's a very kind and generous man and, you know, just another person along the way that – I'll never, never forget um, how much help he was to us at the time. It was a, um, we had no money, and um, and he had a belief, and we put a deal to him, and we sold him the dream, and and it all worked out for us. Tell us a little bit about the cars in a short snapshot. So Audi 80s to begin with, yeah. Then it was the all-wheel drive car, and then you had the the front-wheel drive A4 at the end, didn't you? Well, so. yeah, they were all the 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 80s and the A4 all four-wheel drive cars, mm-hmm. and and we started with the 80s, and and then Kim. And I worked really hard at our relationship. Kim especially had a good relationship with with um, some of the key German mm. guys. Mm. Um, um, they're well, they're about cool as each other. They're a cool looking car. Were they? Were they? The- yeah, no, they were. They were great cars to drive. And then you know, obviously, we had to race against um, Morris's team with the BMWs or Frank Gardner's team, one mm. of whichever way you want to chop it up. And so uh, you know, it was the start of a a, a pretty tense um, part of our lives where we, um, um, you know, had some great races, some great opportunities. We, we went and raced in Macau um, and F- Frank Bieler drove one of our cars. We, we were very successful here. Um, you know, it was really, really good times and, and um, great people, both, both sides of the uh, um, relationship, you know, Germany, um, Audi Sport Australia, which was us hmm. working with Audi. Um, it changed a little bit once Peter Roofley wasn't the managing director. He he was he was fantastic with us and and understood what he wanted. And but but we kept on going it for years and years and years. It was good. And then we got to the front wheel drive car, and that was a real struggle. Was it? You've kept that car though, I think, haven't you? You were talking to Noons. It's at the it's at the Bathurst Museum, is it not? Well, that and car then- that's at the Bathurst Museum is a four wheel drive car. That's the car that they air freighted out for us to race in the last round of the championship in '96. Awesome. Um, so um, we turned up at Oran Park with that car, and I did not like it at all. And I wanted to drive my my normal car, which my brother wasn't that keen on. And they sent an engineer from Germany as well 
So, um, but that's that car. And then we have a front wheel drive car here at the workshop next door um, that we didn't sell when we sold all the stuff off. And it's one of the very few genuine two wheel drive cars left in the world, but they were terrible things. And until, until we got you know, the the clutch sorted out until we got it to drive properly. Once once we got the thing hooked up, we were in business and we could race against the best front-wheel drive cars in the world. But it, it took us a long time and the Germans even started sending people out to see what we were doing and sent us a note and rang and wanted to know if we were cheating because um, the car, you know, we were racing against Tom's Volvo mm. and the BMWs and we were, we were capable of winning. Kelvin O'Reilly has messaged to say to ask you about... The, the final round at Oran Park and how stressful that was and everything that went down um, at, at that event with the, the battle with BMW. It was pretty heavy, wasn't it? Yeah, well, we all had, you know, in those days, um, they wanted to, um, they had a weight penalty, the BMWs. It wasn't much, it was 10 or 15 kilos or something. And they wanted to pull it out. And so they'd swap from Yokohama to Michelin tyres and gone faster instantly and so we had done a test at Lakeside and ran stayed around on the Monday ran the same time of the day same same everything pretty much and finished the race like 15 seconds faster than we'd won the day before Mm -hmm. and so we wanted to go to Michelin's but we weren't allowed to and and then they were hard to beat and they had you know it was it was it came down to Morris versus me and I can remember sitting in the truck um, not letting anyone come in, and you didn't have a little office or anything those days. I just, I was just sitting with my hand. There's lawyers at ten paces and stuff, wasn't there? I yeah, think, yeah. The, well, yeah. they ended up on Saturday night. Um, they had their lawyers, and we had ours. And Peter added and was part of Audi Sport, and um, and Terry Morris is there, and Kim, and that massive fight and argument, and and I remember Kim suggesting to Terry they might pack up and go home. Um, so it was. So it was pretty colourful and pretty fiery. Anyway, um, it all sort of, you know, got sorted out on the track in the end. Paul would drive for you at one point later on, wouldn't yeah, he? Yeah, he did. <laughs> Look, and I, I, he was a good driver. You know, he's, he's a very different person to me. But, but you know, the thing we have in common was both love racing hmm. and, and racing cars. And later on, a couple of years later, he came and drove the Quattro for me at Bathurst and commented on how easy it is to, you know, now we can understand why I won championships. Yeah. Time's going to beat us here, but I want to bounce through a few things if I can. Have you got a plan in place to resto one of those Audis at, at some point? That would be a really cool project. Yeah, one day. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, we've got enough stuff nearly to build the two-wheel drive car up, so I'd love mm-hmm. to do that, and, and I'd like to get the other one going. A couple of drivers that I want to bounce through. Firstly, from a super touring perspective, Cameron McConville. Quick thought on, on Cam when he yeah, was Yeah, Cam you. was a, a really good little peddler, and um, he was my, my teammate in 97, I think. Um, yeah, he's, he's always had a, a good relationship with Cam and then Cam came back and, and drove for us in the wow car. Peter Adderton's cheeky, animated, vocal in the supercar space these days. He's, he's asked about Greg Murphy and, and how things were in terms of the in-house relationship. Uh, things are pretty tough with Greg, hmm. to be honest. You know, we had a better mousetrap than anyone else and so what we used to do was we'd take it in turns of winning races. So when it was my turn to gift him a race, I'd roll out of the brakes at a corner and let him slide down the inside. And when it was my turn to win a race, he'd jump in the brakes in the middle of a straight, which I didn't like. And so we had we didn't have a very good relationship. We've got a good one now, yep. but it was, you know, Murph was looking to move forward and um, and I totally get that, but it was a pretty, it, was a, it wasn't a great relationship here. Fabian Coulthard came on the podcast last year and I had a good chat with him. He talked about how difficult leaving here was um you might like to give your side on it but he he did say which i was i was quite pleased that he felt as though you guys were were sort of patching your relationship that it was better and and that you're having a bit more sort of dialogue yeah look fabian was you know we we were fighting for championships when fabian was here driving Mm. our car and so so for me uh i my problem with him was never that he was leaving to go to djr um mind you i was upset at the end when phil keed went out the door Mm-hmm. as well but um i was all over fabian for weeks trying to find out just get an indication of what he was thinking and where he was want to go and so they end up telling me when he was doing a television interview at the same time he's filming a television show that he was he was going to be leaving and i felt like i felt like i'd earned more respect than that mm. so that that bothered me for a long time but i have a great relationship with gray and fabian now and chat to them and have no problem with them but at the time it left a bad taste in my mouth 
Jason Richards. You talked about the photo in your office and things like that. Much missed. I, I can still, even as you and I sit here now, mate, I, I um, uh, quite an honour. Uh, he he uh, had his funeral at a non-denominational church in, in Melbourne. I did a little bit of MC stuff there. One of the hardest things to do in life, but a great, a great honour. I often wonder now, mate, what he would have achieved, what he would have, what he would have done in our game. Well, we have a picture of him in the boardroom as well. Mm. And um, uh, look, Jace, Jace was taken away before his time. He, he was, um, unfortunately, what I think, and this is just my opinion, getting sick gave him structure. Mm. And and um, I think it's a, if he had a recovered, I think he certainly would have certainly been in a position to go on and win a championship. I mean, mm. the raw speed he had was staggering. And, and um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the times all I can afford really here, but certainly back in those days, was people that had were a little bit broken or people thought were past their prime. And I see something in them and I try and, you know, get them to maximise their potential. Mm-hmm. And he was one of those guys. And Simon McNamara pushed him towards me and I, I knew how fast he was mm. and then it was my job to try and make sure he could understand what he needed to do to get the best out of himself you know the last time he drove a race car was in hidden valley um and he did a time that was only beaten by one other driver which was craig baird on soft tires um and i don't think Brighty on used tires went as fast as him um for the whole weekend and honestly he was taking so many drugs to, to just function mm. and with the pain and he got so sick when he got out of that car because the intention was for him to drive a Bathurst yeah. that um, um, Kerry Stokes ended up sending his plane up to flying back and I thought he was not going to make it but he went on to, to last for mm. you know another six months after that. Did you sense something wasn't right with him before, before um, yeah, you discovered I, it? He, he was having trouble. He was, he was sick a lot and so... Um, he, I sent him off to see a doctor and the doctor told him that um, he what, – what did the doctor say? The doctor said to him that that he he probably had an allergy, you know, there's something like that wrong with him and so gave him a puffer. Mm-hmm. And then and then he was still not well by Bathurst and um, um, I'm not sure which one of his daughters slid down a slide and kicked him in the nose and broke his nose. And so he went back to the doctor and he said, oh, you know, they just put you on a different medicine. And then when we went to Tasmania, he looked really terrible. And so we, took, uh, doctor, we uh, talked to him about it and he went and saw Dr. Carl. We got mm-hmm. Dr. Carl to have a look at him and that's when they diagnosed him as as um, being really sick and having cancer. And so so that was the beginning of that particular part of the journey for him. Yep. And, um, you know, very, very sad and difficult time for him and his family. It's just such a waste that, that someone so young and talented um, ended up so sick. Agreed. Let's, let's bounce to a couple of positives, mate. John Cleland. What was it like having him around here? He's been on the pod too. I think he told a funny story about uh, business class airfares or something or other and Kim having to... Yeah, well, I wouldn't <laughs> want to pay to that for those. <laughs> That's for sure. Especially after we finished second, he figured his value was much higher than what we did. So, um, but look, he, he was great. You know, mm. we, we really struggled with that car. He came and drove it with me. And then um, we changed the car on the um, on the Saturday afternoon, and we went out in practice. And I, I can't remember whether it was a caster, but it, it was so hard to steer. Mm-hmm. You, you had to take your hands off the steering wheel, going across the top of the mountain, put your leg against the steering wheel like a like a dampener, and then move your hands so and they jam were it straight. in there, wedge it yeah, in there. Yeah, and so the car, the wheels would be have a bit of lock on it, but your hands would be straight. And so I came back in, and I said. How's it to drive? Because it's pretty fast. And I said, honestly, I could barely do a stint like that. And Clallan walked in, <laughs> threw in a couple of colourful adjectives and went, we're not driving a car like that. And and so they, they changed it. And then in the warm-up in the morning, man, it was just a rocket. You know, mm. it was um, – I can remember because they used to have that totem pole. Come down, look at the totem pole, you know, car 21, yeah. uh, be be – you know, wherever it was in the top 10, go across the start-finish line, look at it going up to two and car 21, fastest lap. And so we, we were on wets and it was so – Kim's on the radio going, hey, slow down. Like, we got a race today. I went, no, the car's that good. So we stopped and put slicks on it. We won the few cars to go out and I went out on slicks and it was damp. And when we came in, um, I said, wow, this thing, like, 
we're on today. And we started out at 21 or 22. And then we got up near the lead and then John's radio didn't work. And so when I got in the car the first time, we were last again. And then we worked our way back to the front. But he was a great guy. Mm. Really, really funny, funny, funny guy. Macca. Well, Mac is my son. Mm. So, you know, he's my best friend. You know, we do so much stuff together. We're so close. And, um, you know, he's... He's he's living the dream. He's trying to anyway. And so he, I see from the time he raced, started racing go-karts, you know, he's very successful with that. With the Formula Fords, he and Anton raced uh, for the Formula Ford Championship. And then really supercars have been really, really difficult for him. But I understand that grind. Mm. And I feel like now he's starting to get a couple of good results. And, and um, you know, it's his whole life. He's, he's wired a bit differently to me. In what way? Well... He's, he's, um, uh, I, I'm, uh, I live off my wits. You know, I'm, I think my mental toughness is, is one of my real strengths. Mm -hmm. And, and, um. Is that from your dad? Yeah, maybe. Mm. I know. It's just the way I've come up really. Mm -hmm. And, and, and with Maka, he's, he's the most determined, determined person I've ever met. Mm. He's, he's training, his commitment to life is is unbelievable to mm. watch and and i mean every parent talks about their mm. their kid like this but um you know i i um i'm so fortunate that i can give him that opportunity to live the dream and um uh and it's you know for some young guys that come in the sport and they instantly get where they want to be mm. and others it's not like that you know if you look at pd when he's he got into supercars it took him a long time but he ended up winning you know races in the end and mm. was was really strong and and it's it's just a hard old grind so it's it's great that he does what i've done but um it's hard work is there a balance in all that as as parent but also as team owner and and you know sort of uh, mentoring but also um uh, uh, pushing them to want to succeed like what has all that balance been like for you um yeah that's a that's a tricky one i try not to push too hard i get frustrated i mm. mean i'm you know if someone roughs but you're me a parent, up you want them to avoid the pitfalls too mate, yeah don't you? yeah you know, i so, do and mm, so mm. so i'm i i try pretty hard to to help with that mm. um you know where we you know if someone does me wrong mm. i'll do them wrong but he's mm. not like that okay you know he doesn't go down and poke anyone in the chest and go hey idiot that's mm. uh, not his style um but he he has his own way of working out he works really hard and and you know we're we're unbelievably close you know we do so much stuff together um you know we when he moved out he just moved like 800 meters away and his gym was in my backyard and and now i'm a little bit out of town and he's got a block of land not very far from me again and you know he's around a lot and we, we, we're just extremely close Awesome. Paint a picture for the listeners of the size of Brad Jones Racing as we know it, as it sits here today from a staffing point of view. And in the landscape post-COVID slash economy slash whatever, how, how challenging is it running a, a business like that in, in motorsport right now? Well, yeah, it, it is really tough. When you think about it and look back at the people that have been successful in motorsport that mm. really don't have another business to prop up their, their motorsport or get involved in motorsport or haven't started with a big bag of gold mm. you know that's what you see when you walk into this place there are others that have done it mm. the stones mm. um but not many and and um that's something that i'm really proud of you know, we started off in this very shed that we, we sit in at the moment um and built this amazing business almost by accident we have 55 full-time people here at BJR. We have two B-doubles and another B-trailer where we run our Super 2 car. We've got four cars that we run in the main game. We've got a spare car. We've got two Super 2 cars, two Super 3 cars. We have our own fabrication department, our own design studio. We wrap everything. We have a sub-assembly department. We fundamentally do everything here except for engines. And this is the first year we haven't done transaxles for a long time. So we're, we're a one-stop shop and... Um, you know, we've got a very strong engineering group. Um, it's a very family-friendly business and and I know everybody that works here and we're all close. Mm. You know, it's um, when Andre and Bryce came to join the team at the start of the year, Paul Scalzo had a barbecue at his place and Paul Eddie, our, our truck driver, got a lamb and put it on a spit and 90% of the team came along and Andre awesome. went, oh, my God, I can't – this is Saturday. You've mm. got, like, your whole team here. Mm. 
and and but that's the, it's a close it's a close knit hmm. close group and it's it's really how how we've been racing our whole lives. You should be immensely proud, mate, not, not just of some of the drivers that have, have proudly represented you over time, but also some of the engineering group that have come through here and along the way. Can we finish with uh, some fun stuff, if we can? Crompton says to ask you about Brock and the gumboots and riding. Oh, <laughs> we, we, Richo talked us into to going out for a bike ride and Brock turned up in a pair of gumboots on a Suzuki. I mean, it's like crazy stuff. So, so, and I remember it's freezing cold and Brock had, he might have been able to drive a car, but I'd give you the tip, he couldn't ride a motorbike. So, so we had a pretty fun day though. Neil turned up in all the motocross gear, you know, he looked like Mr. Motocross. Hmm. And I remember I was on a bike and we went through a puddle of mud and I dragged my toe through it and just... Coated him in mud from head to toe, <laughs> so all his white gear turned brown pretty rapidly. So yeah, that's crazy stuff. You've raced some great tracks around the world, including Spa. True or false? A Rouge, one of the most amazing sequence of corners in the world, on a long stint, he had a slash in the car through A Rouge. True or false? Well, s- sort of. <laughs> I did, but it was behind a safety car. <laughs> Oh, classic, classic. Which is very, very... Tamara Vidalia, who I was sharing the car with, her Italian was a bit broken. And so I told the the head guy, uh, who's South African, that I'd peed in the seat. Not in the seat, but on the floor. And one thing about urine, it stinks when it's drying. And and so I said to him, look, just put some gloves on when you're pulling the floor out of the car. So then at the end of the day, there's like 80 people standing in a room and he's like, I want to thank everyone. We ended up on the podium with two of the cars. Great result. And Brad, uh, thanks for pissing in the car through Eau Rouge. <laughs> and, and I was like, oh, man, now everyone knows. And Tamara, whose English was broken, but I knew her quite well. She'd come out here and driven a car for me. She's like looking at me a bit perplexed and she's walked over and said, Brad, so you, you piss in the car through Eau Rouge? And I said... Yeah, but it was behind the safety car. And she goes, really? And I went, yes, Tamara, I did. <laughs> Flat tack on the throttle, urinating through the corner. And she goes, wow. And I went, yeah, that's right. First bloke you've ever met that can do two things at once. <laughs> Crompo says to ask about Mandy and Fiona and the plugs, but I reckon that's harsh and I reckon you've told that story before too. More, more than once. <laughs> so I won't subject you to that again. Can I just finish with the car? Along the way, you've driven some amazing stuff in your career, mate. Is What's the one car, if you could go to sleep and dream, that it was the perfect car on the day... Or is it just? Has it? Have they just been tools for the, for the yeah. pursuit, mate? Um, look, it's it's, you know, the funny part is you look back and you think about um, what you could have done in that car, hmm. which which relates to making it feel like a perfect car. Hmm. And there's different eras, you know. And I've driven four wheel drive cars and rear wheel drive cars and front wheel drive cars, so it's hard to actually go, wow, you know, that car. I mean, what we do with the front-wheel drive out, it was the worst car we had. Um, but to win a race with that and be the only one that ever won a race with a two-wheel drive Audi against proper competition, that was pretty special. But I wouldn't say I overly loved that particular car. car. Mm. So, uh, you know, the, the, the best way to answer that question, I guess, is the R8 Audi I drove at Le Mans uh, at, race at, at, at Adelaide. Race for a thousand years, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I didn't get to race it. So at the time, I was really angry. Um, and so... But that was as close as a Formula One car I could I could ever get. By then, I had a good relationship with Frank Beeler. Mm-hmm. I knew all the factory Audi guys because I'd met them in different functions and things, so they all knew me. Mm. And and but I'd never driven anything with with downforce like that. And so going through uh, on the, the kink in the back straight and and around behind the pits, I was so weak there, and I couldn't get my head around. I said to Frank. How, how do you know when, you, when you're going to slide off? He goes, you don't. You just hold it flat. And I'm like, yeah, I can't do that. And so... Um, well, you could. You could, but not in that circumstance. N- not though, not think, after yeah. a handful of laps. So mm. I, I did... And in the race meeting. Yeah, and I, mm. I did. I sort of drove it. Anyway, Mignish, who I was meant to be replacing, his back was okay, started the race. And then Dindo got in it, who was the co-driver. And that car, I mean, they won by 17 laps. And then 
I thought I might get a chance to drive in the last thin, even though they all thought I was slow. I knew mm. once I did a handful of laps in it, I'd be fine. Mm. And we were so far in front of the field. And so they decided to put me in at the end of the race. Then then Dr. Ulrich uh, had a fight with the, the guys from Yoss. They didn't want me in the car. And then the laps counted down. I didn't get in the car. So that car won. And then they came to me and said, okay, car's won. Up you go to the podium. Oh, mm. fuck. I won't be going to the podium. I didn't win the race. And they're like, yep, this happened with Alberetto in, in uh, the States, Sebring or somewhere. You need to go up and get your trophy. And really that was a pretty stupid moment of mine. I should have just gone and got the trophy, mm. but I was embarrassed because I didn't feel like I contributed. Yeah. And and But that was an amazing car, an amazing weekend. I look back on that weekend and, and wish I had done things a lot differently. But Must I, have required a serious brain reprogram to know you could – break that deep and, and, and lean on the car in that, that sort of manner, given that you come from... In the touring cars. car, mm-hmm. you break it 300 metres on the back straight. Mm-hmm. In that thing, uh, I think it was 70 or 90 metres. And so, you know, I looked at the data when I got out of the car and I was breaking at 160 mm-hmm. and having to give it a stab at the throttle to go up the corner. And so I went, um, shit, okay, no problem, 90. I can do that. I know where the board is. Mm-hmm. But trying to get your head your brain to accept that you could actually stay in the throttle. I think the closest I got was 110. And and even then, I thought I was going to die. And then the, for the first 20 metres, the, the car didn't feel like it was going to stop. Then when the heat got in the carbon brakes, it would just stop at no time at all. Mm, mm. So, yeah, it was, it was, you know, and I got called on a Saturday morning or Friday morning, whatever. So I got one practice session. It was, it was crazy. But amazing you know through those twisty bits and like i said that's as close as i'll ever get or ever got to racing a formula one car so so that was a even though it was a pretty shitty experience it was it was but but the downside of that was i didn't anywhere near getting the the most out of that car where i can actually sit here and say that car i finished second at bathurst with craig you know that particular day uh, i was pretty happy with my job as you should be. Hey, thanks for spending some time and, and talking to us. You've done some incredible things during your career that you should be um, immensely proud of. I know your, your, your dad um, was immensely proud of, of what you've, you've achieved, mate, and that you're continuing to, you know, bring engineers through and, and um, you know, give drivers an opportunity, and we wish you the very, very best with the, um, the next chapter for Supercars, mate. Thanks, Rusty. I appreciate the time. Rusty's Garage is written and presented by me, Greg Rust. Series editor and producer is Ed Gooden. Audio production by Link Kelly. If you've got a guest suggestion, get in touch with me via social media. The Garage. It's where a journey begins with a tank full of passion-fueled stories. Listener.